I'll try to relieve some of the anxieties that has been expressed in comments on this paper, which I think is misplaced. Of course, I cannot guarantee that, you know, kind of mean, kind of gray bureaucrats will not kind of get you at the end, but uh, I'll at least give you my, uh, my uh, view on this. Now, we know that standardization can arise in market in many ways. It can arise through the action of a firm that becomes dominant and imposes a standard. It can arise because a restricting number of firms get together in some kind of consortium and try to push their standard alone or against somebody else's standards. Or it can happen through an industry-wide or nearly industry-wide effort through standard-setting organization. And my talk today is going to be limited to this third way of trying to achieve standardization in the markets. Now, as we know, the standardization process is very long and very complex. It starts all the way back when firms make the first investment in the R&D that is going to lead to innovations, patented or not, that might be used in the standard. That starts way before maybe even the need for a standard arises. Then there's a perceived need for these standards. Somebody decides to do something about it in an SSO. The rules for participation in this SSO are set. After that, to make it short, the technical aspects of the standard are being sorted out, which means that you use existing innovation, ongoing innovation, but also innovation which is designed specially to fill the gap in the puzzles that you have to kind of put together. You don't always have you know, all the pieces of the puzzle of the shelf. Once you have a standard, then we move to what we call the expo situation, when you have to license these standards and you get into all of the issue of who should be licensed, under what term, and so on, and what happens if there are disagreements. Okay? Now, the report that I'm going to talk about really doesn't look at this first part. It really starts at the point where the need for a standard has been recognized and the SSO process begins. This is the studies that I'm going to refer to. Now, let me give you a little bit of information both about the methodologies that we followed and about the spirit in which this study should be taken. The methodology was that we first started with a kind of review of what the economic and policy literature on the topic has said over the last 20 or 25 years to identify what we thought would be the most important problems that need to be solved by the standard setting organization process. Then, to make sure that we were not going on a limb based on just theoretical consideration, we also consulted a bunch of stakeholders, and by stakeholders we mean people holding standard financial patent, people using them, sometimes these are the same, people who are involved in running standard setting organization, involved in running patent pools, policymakers, academics. Now, the table here gives you an idea of the people we managed to reach at different stage through the initial consultation in which we were not involved, then through interviews, workshop, and post-workshop survey that we led. Now, we did strive very hard to reach a variety of people, but as you know, if you've ever tried to do this kind of studies, that's actually very difficult. You always get the same people answering. And as you see, we, as usual, despite best effort, got a very, very great bias towards the ICT industries and had trouble finding interested people in other industries, although we did get some answers from, from industries like the car manufacturing industry, where they have now realized that they are very close to the stage where they're going to be 
closely involved in this kind of standard setting process. So that's essentially the methodology based on the feedback from those people. We refined uh, the topics that we thought were the topics worth considering. We also got an idea of what the people's view were, tried to understand whether those views were kind of justified narrowly by self-interest or whether there actually was something more to that than the view, whether therefore there was some potential for agreement between different parties. Now, that gives me directly a road into the spirit of the study. The spirit of the study is now to review absolutely everything about standard setting and to set rigid rules. The view of the study say, okay, we have problems. We have, to, we have some disagreement. If we try to solve everything at the same time, we're never gonna get anywhere. So can we at least agree on some set of reform, and by reform, that might be recommendations, not necessarily rules, on which there would be kind of something for everybody. And where at the end, the overall process would be better off. Now, what do I mean by saying there's something for everybody? I can mean two things. The first one is that there are clearly some kind of reforms that make everybody better off. Let me give you two examples. Reforms that decrease the, the transaction costs from licensing. Clearly, that benefits the licenses and the licensee, and therefore, indirectly, the consumers as well. So it's got to be possible to find some agreement there. Okay. Other thing is the issue of royalty stacking. What is royalty stacking? To refresh memories, this is the fact that if you have different pieces that need to be put together to make something, a standard, for example, then if those different pieces are kind of priced independently by different owners, you end up with a total which is too high. But what people usually forget is that it's too high for everybody. It's not good for the patent holder either. For the patent holder, this tag is too high. It leads to too little demand downstream, and therefore to a decrease in the expected royalty. Therefore, on stacking as well, there's got to be room at least for some partial agreement between the parties and no strict opposition between the parties. The third so that was two examples. The second view in which we try to come up with something that would get the agreement potentially of parties to say, okay, forget now those special topics where everybody has something to gain. There are clearly topics in which one side has to gain and one side has to lose. Because of that, it's very important when you look at the proposals to not go and pick and choose, which unfortunately is what most of the commentators have done, be, oh, I don't like this one, I like this one. No, this is a whole because precisely it is designed so that if I take something from you to enhance efficiency that I know is gonna be costly for you, then you know, I try to be careful to kind of do the same thing on the other side, to enhance efficiency for everybody. Maybe it's a, this time it's costly to the other side so that overall everybody gains. If then you just say, okay, I agree to everything except for the three measures that cost me something, and then the people on the other side do exactly the same thing. Of course, everything is dead on arrival. You've got to think of this as an attempt to propose not individual reform, but reform packages. Okay. Now, what are the main issues? Well, the main issues are well known. The main issue, probably, is what we call hold up and hold out. And by now, you all know what that means. It means that 
we have a hold up in a situation where one of the parties that made some investments that are specific to, to a potential standard, to potential transaction. And then if the terms on which the standards can be sold or made available or uh, uh, access obtained to are decided after those costs have been made, there's a tendency for the other party to give, give you a deal that expropriates some of the investments that you already have made. Okay? And you've got to admit that at least, you know, at first sight, the conditions for holdup are there. Why? Because the firms that contribute to the standards have already signed quite a bit of the R&D that led to the standard essential pattern that often have little usefulness outside of the standard. And in the same way, the implementers often start either designing the product based on what they think the standards is going to be, or at least designing the functionality of the product under the expectation that there will be a standard, and therefore seeing resources, part of which will be sung at the time exposed when the standard is done, where they get to negotiate about uh, the royalties. So the objective situation for hold up and hold out, or reverse hold up if you prefer, are there. Now, I know that one of the panaceas that lobbyists <coughs> kind of throw in your face all the time is that hold up, hold out, there's no problem. Show us evidence that they're hold up and hold out. I would first mention that I don't see why we would have to do this when there's actually not something that we have to do for most of the intervention, in, including uh, competition law intervention. You do not have to have strong evidence that mergers tend to be bad or not to have merger regulation, and so on and so on. So I think, first, it's a pretty strange reaction. Second, we know that holdup can occur, and then when it occurs, it can have very devastating consequences. Uh, very well-documented case studies of industries where holdup essentially kind of killed the industries. We also know from empirical studies uh, economic studies that hold up is an issue in the sense that we know that we observe lots of measures that from take to try to solve the, uh, the, the hold up problem that they would not take otherwise. So the kind of empirical evidence that we have is not direct evidence on hold up that's very difficult to get, but we see in situations where there might be a hold up, we observe that firm try as hard as possible to solve the hold up problem. That's a bit of a two-edged kind of influence because it's telling me, yes, hold up is an issue, but the way we measure it's an issue is that firms do things to solve it. <laughs> so is it an issue, but does it get solved most of the time? We don't know. Okay? So why I reject this claim that hold up is not an issue and we should not do anything unless we have complete empirical proof that there's an issue, I keep in mind that we still are uncertain about how much of an issue that is. So when we look at things that we want to do in order to solve the holdup issue, it's important to be light touch. It's important to have to do things that will be effective if it happened to be an issue, but would not cause too much of a problem, would not be too costly, so that if it happened not to be an issue, we do not impose unnecessary cost on the industry. Okay? So that's my view on holdup problem. Royalty stacking, we've already discussed that. Royalty stacking is not really a competition law issue. It's an inefficiency that comes from diverse ownership. Okay? And we'll see that there are several ways in which one might be able to reduce this inefficiency. These are the two big issues people always talk about. And we've talked about those for 50 years. Now we move into issues that were a bit newer 
in this, uh, in this report, and there was issues of transparency and transaction costs. That's less glamorous, less interesting economically, but it's probably very useful. Now, those issues really deal much more with the exposed part of the SSO process. It doesn't deal with how you get to the standard through technical decision. It really gets to, you've got the standard, how do you publicize it, how do you let the people who need to know what the standard is, what kind of IP they, get access, they need to get access to, how do you make sure that the IP negotiation are as efficient as possible. So here we're going to talk about just you know, the cost of doing IP agreement. When you negotiate an IP agreement, for example, you'd like to have an idea of what you're getting. So you'd like to get an idea of how valid or essential the patents are. And there might be ways to kind of decrease the cost of reducing this kind of asymmetric information you might be able to find yourself into. There's also this general feeling that has been repeated again for at least 20 years. There are too many standard essential patents. So we're going to ask, does it matter in terms of transaction costs and transparency? And if it does, are there kind of solutions that could kind of reduce this number of declared essential patents? So that's the kind of thing we'll talk about. And then after that, the third part of the report looks really at licensing practices that have been kind of contested, especially by implementers and, for example, you know, let's not make any secret, by Apple as one of the leading consistent, and that deals with issues like the royalty base, should be, should be kind of the whole thing or the smallest kind of component, with the level at which you should charge the royalty as far down, as close to the consumer as possible, or as far up in the vertical chain as possible, and the issue of portfolio licensing. Okay. So that's essentially the roadmap of what we're going to talk about. Now, what the report does is try to map those, each of those policy issues with possible policy remedies or at least policy suggestions that might help. And if you, talk, if you start with hold up, well, clearly, what we have been using for a long time, although we're not quite sure what it is, is the so-called friend commitment. The goal of friend commitment in an SCP setting is to deal with hold up, is to ensure that you cannot expose, use, abuse more monopoly, more market powers than you legitimately would have had in an excellent negotiation. That's what it is. That's the concept. Okay? Now, clearly, if you're going to have friend, then you need to know what friend applies to. So you cannot have friend without having some mandatory declaration of patterns to which friend applies. Friend without declaration is meaningless. So then the question is, what kind of declaration do you need? And here it's important to distinguish between ex ante declaration at the beginning of the standard setting process and expose once the standard setting process has followed its course. Ex ante declarations are there to make sure that the standard setting organization is kind of freedom to design, is not going to end up uh, using some kind of pieces of IP on which friend, to which friend commitments do not apply. In that sense, it seems much more efficient in terms of decreasing transaction costs to recommend the so-called so negative declaration, which is a declaration say, if I take part in the SSO effort, all of my patents are fair game unless I identify specific patents of patent families that are not fair games. 
that gets around the usual uh, uh, complaint of pattern holders. Say, you know, at the beginning of standard setting process, I have no idea which pattern they're going to apply or not. So if I have to have a positive declaration identifying all of the patterns that apply, that's very costly to me. Fine. Do negative uh, declarations. That's something that's been done with success in many standard setting organizations. Of course, exposed, you cannot just have a negative declaration because exposed, people have to know what, what they're going to get to have license to. So exposed, the only kind of declaration that you can possibly have is a specific declaration, a list of the patterns that you think you own or applications that you own that would be essential for the standard. Okay? That's for all doubt. Now, what about all doubt? All doubt is not part of the frame commitment. Although you could argue that by taking, care, taking part in, uh, in the process, appliers also kind of make a commitment to behave fairly, but de facto, that's much less tied to the notion of friend. So from that point of view, what we have, which is probably about the best that we can have for now, is essentially a combination of judgment. We have the ZTA versus UOA that gives you a roadmap of what the obligation of licensor and licensee are at different times, and the refinement of this roadmap that we've had uh, very recently with the UOA versus unwide planet decision. Now, for stacking, what can you do? One thing that we recommend, and which I actually believe in, is the so-called royalty stack declaration. So where does this come from? That comes from a reference to the so-called the much maligned ex-ante benchmark to friend, which is a term of economics. It's a logical benchmark to have. This benchmark has been much maligned because people essentially say, look, we're never going to be able to guess what all of the royalty rates would have been if a negotiation had taken place ex-ante. And that's fine. Clearly, nobody is ever going to be able to do that. But that does not, in my mind, give you a condition for actually abandoning completely this benchmark for two reasons. First, this benchmark implies a number of principles. I'm not going to discuss them here, but for example, a principle that it implies is that what matters in terms of determining the royalty rates was the structure and ownership of standard essential pattern ex ante, not the one that you have exposed. That's a direct logical implication of the ex ante mark. Benchmark, and you don't need to be able to reconstruct, to reconstruct it to kind of draw the conclusion from this kind of application. But also, why I think that it's, of course, impossible to be able to imagine what every possible royalty rate would have been. I think that on the other hand, it's not out of the realm of possibilities to have a good guess of what ex ante, a total stack, reasonable stack, would have been. Why do I say that? I say that first because actually some firms have ex ante sometimes said, oh, you know, I think that a total stack that would be reasonable would be for something like 8%. Second is because if you only have to worry about the stack, then it's possible to use comparison method, case studies, econometric studies, to kind of get at least some approximation of what the stack has been. Okay? So that's why I think that having some kind of notion of what a friend total stack is has some advantages. There's some advantages, not only for friend, but of course for stacking. Because if you can have some kind of commitment or indicative commitment by parties extended to the stack, they will have an incentive not to set it too high 
compared to what would maximize their joint profits. So that's something which is designed to deal with a friend issue, but also helps with a stacking issue. Now, on term of transparency of the licensing process, something that is very important when you listen to the complaints of both sides is to remember this is still licensing. So our benchmark should be normal, not Fred encumbered licensing. And in those benchmarks are things that you normally do. If I want you to get a license from me, I have to tell you what you're getting. And usually I have to explain why you need to get it, i.e. why I think that you're infringing. Therefore, when we recommend that not only you have to declare your standard essential pattern, but you should at the very least explain why a given family of standard essential pattern is relevant to the standard, and here I'm not talking about complex you know, claim maps, just saying I've got a family of pattern, I'm going to say this is relevant to chapter or section number X of the, uh, of the uh, standard. Don't come and complain that they're increasing uh, your cost, that it's unfair, something like that. That's something you would have to do in any licensing situation. Okay? So let's not exaggerate things. So that you should have to do. To facilitate out of that, I think it makes a lot of sense to have a public database of which are the standard essential patterns and therefore which aspect of the standard they supposedly correspond to. And you could think of somebody like the EPO as being a very natural place to have this database. They've got the expertise. They already handle this kind of stuff. So it's kind of reasonably neutral, I would think. So that's kind of a first stop. Another thing that many people complain about, and especially looking forward to the Internet of Things, where it's no longer going to be you know, big boys against big boys, but a lot of smaller and more diverse firms are going to be involved, that those smaller and more diverse firms have expressed concern about the fact that they're lost in this world. They really kind of don't know what they're getting. You say you've got 2,000 essential patterns. Is that true? I've got no idea. So I think that it is absolutely essential, if I dare say, to make progress in this dimension. And for that, we're proposing that there would be, at some level, we have to discuss as to who would actually organize that, some essentiality testing. Now, when we talk about essentiality testing, people always say, oh, yeah, but do you know how much it costs? Well, yes, but also no statistics. And statistics tells you that if you have a 1,000 pattern portfolio, to estimate what the average quality of your pattern portfolio is in terms of essentiality with very high level of reliability. I don't need to test 300 of your patterns. I can randomly test 50 and get very, very reliable estimates. So that kind of gets the cost down very much. People also do not realize that there are cost saving in doing that because consider a situation where this is not done publicly. Then essentially, in every bilateral negotiation, the applier, the licensee, is gonna to have to do some of it itself to have an idea of what they do. So that's a totally useless replication of effort. And we have some computation in the report, back of the computation, that suggests that when you take this into account, it's actually not clear whether this is net cost at all. And that actually is more likely to be economies than anything else. Okay. Now, I'm essentially, uh, I'm almost done with the time, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Okay. Three, four. Okay, so yes, that's, 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 that's what I saw. So this essentially kind of give you a good idea of, of the main thing we're talking about. Now let's say, let me say a word about too many standard essential patterns. 
Now, first, is this a problem? Why, why would it be a problem? Right? If you're in a world where you're essentially going to say, oh, that's a royalty stack, and then we're going to divide this royalty stack based on the number of patterns I have as a share of total declared pattern, yeah, it doesn't take that long to count patterns. I can count to 1,000, uh, you know, maybe in three or four minutes. Uh, I'm not going to be you much more for this than counting to 100. So that cannot be the problem. Also, in over negotiation, what's the difference between negotiation for a portfolio of 50 or 1,000? If it's 1,000, I'm just going to negotiate based on my idea of what the overall value of your portfolio is. That's not a huge cost either. People do that all the time. For us, the huge cost is more at the level of transactions, at the level of licensing, of the level of really, if you care about finding out about how essential they are, then the cost of, if you have more SCP, the cost of, of doing all those essentially tests and so on might actually kind of increase. So if you believe that in terms of transaction costs, having too many standard essential pattern is a problem, what can we do about it? Well, economists like to say, well, price it. Well, you could price it. You say, if you want to declare a, a standard essential pattern, you've got to pay me something for each pattern that you declare. That could work. The problem is that you can already kind of hear kind of the howls uh, of despair on the standard essential pattern owner's side, and to, with some reason, right? As I told you initially, what we're trying to do is to not rock the boat too much as to who gets what, what rain from the process so we can reach a consensus. So when you start thinking about it, there are kind of two ways in which you can solve the problem. You say, who really benefits from this kind of things? If there is really kind of things like a reduction, like essentially testing, for essentially testing, I told you, a big benefit is that the users will not have to duplicate each other's effort. So that's a benefit that tends to go more to the users and to the SCP holders. So if we still need to get a net finance, financing for this kind of stuff, then maybe it should be more on the users than on the ACP holders. But then economics have a bag of tricks. They don't just use penalties. They can also have fee-less system. And that's you know, one aspect which seems strange in economics, but I actually kind of like in this report, is that it's very easy to design a fee-less system that gives firms the incentive not to declare too many standard essential patterns. You use those random essentiality tests that give you essentially what the average essentiality or number of, average number of patterns of your 50 that are found to be essential that give me a measure of your, the average quality of your portfolio. So I've got two numbers, this average and the number of patterns in your portfolio. Then I can use a formula to tell you which share of the stack this gives you a right to. And as is shown in the report, uh, briefly here, so you've got a weight, WI, and your share of the stack is your weight divided by the weight of everybody else. And if you have something very simple, you can show that if you have some kind of intelligent design, average, weighted average of those two criteria, the so number of patterns that you declare, and then the average quality that's going to be found out through those random tests. You can adjust the parameters in this formula in a way that give firm very different incentives. For example, if you look at this, as I change the parameters, don't worry about what those parameters are, as I change the parameters, 
I can go, go to a situation where firms essentially would each declare only the, the pattern which is most likely to be essential to a situation where they would declare absolutely every, every single pattern. So you can adjust the policy to kind of adjust you know, the level of declaration that you want. And let's not think that this is voodoo. This is very easy. You've got two simple measures that everybody can understand. You've got a sample formula. You can have a spreadsheet. You, have an, you know how much patterns you have. You have an idea as to what you think the essentiality is. Play with a spreadsheet, decide how many and which one you want to declare. Now, I haven't said a word about the licensing practices. There's no big deal because I'm sure that these issues will come up as part of the discussion and then we'll talk about that then. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Pierre. I think uh, given that uh, the multiple dimensions uh, of um, associated issues is remarkable how you put everything uh, uh, in a structure and map the policies to issues. Uh, on, after we finish the first round of the comments, uh, I would like to hear some more about this uh, fearless system. I think it's uh, really interesting. Uh, but uh, I will turn now to Alexandra to hear her views and uh, also about these policy pro propositions, whether you feel that uh, will help us to move forward with the associated debates. Okay. Uh, so good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I would like to start by congratulating Pierre, uh, Raphael, and Hans for this very um, thought-provoking report. It was really a pleasure um, to read it. And for the purpose of our discussion today, I would like to make five points briefly, Roger, so don't worry, I'll stick to time. So the first point I would like to make is about the political economy perspective, which is important when speaking about uh, standard development organizations. So what is the optimal IPR policy? The optimal IPR policy is one which maximizes total welfare, which is determined by, as we discussed, the, the, the interests of innovators, the interests of adopters or, or, or implementers, and the, the welfare of consumers. Uh, and there is no reason, of course, to believe that uh, the interests of the implementers are more aligned with the interests of consumers just because they're closer uh, in, the, in the supply chain, in the value chain. And as these this, this interests are so diverse in this context, naturally, uh, the optimal IPR policy will be one which makes no one happy. So innovators will complain that the optimal IPR policy is, uh, is biased towards uh, implementers. Implementers will complain uh, that it favors innovators and consumers normally. We also consider this optimal IPR policy as one that is pro-innovator uh, unless they take into account the impact of weaker IP protection on, on investment, right? So if everyone is equally unhappy, we might have actually gotten things right uh, in this political economy uh, framework. Um, so innovators' bargaining power will normally be low in SDOs, which are co controlled by adopters and vice versa. Normally, adopters and innovators will have uh, superior information as to the impact of IPR policies uh, than the government and they will try to manipulate this information to, to align the, the government's preferences with theirs. Of course, as, as Pierre mentioned, there will be uh, lobbying efforts. Uh, uh, innovators and adopters will try to lobby the legislature. Uh, and so we should keep all this in mind because we are in a context where a lot of people are very vocal 
because we have very diverging interests involved and we have high stakes involved. Um, and uh, Jorge Padilla actually presented a little model um, uh, of an SDO as a common agent in this type of political economy framework uh, in this year's IP leadership conference. And we hope to actually build on this framework to study these issues further because this is really important uh, for understanding uh, the, the optimal SDO policies and how actually decisions are taken within SDOs. Um, and uh, what I will say now, so the second point I will make is actually closely related to my first point, is that SDOs are very diverse organizations. And so one type of policy does not fit all. So we see SDOs playing very different roles in different sectors. You know, sometimes they are actually organized by government, sometimes they are quasi-formal organizations, other times they are really informal uh, consortia. Uh, <coughs> sometimes they involve just a couple of members and they, 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 they concern uh, specifications of just a narrow, small number of technical parameters. In other times, they involve more than thousands or thousands of members and they actually oversee multiple standardization uh, efforts uh, simultaneously. So, so actually it comes as no surprise that SDOs have very different governance structures. They have, for example, very different voting mechanisms. Uh, some uh, apply uh, major simple majority rules. Some have two-thirds rules or anonymity. Uh, they have often, often multi-stage voting procedures or, or, or you can actually uh, appeal, uh, the you have possibilities of appeal. Some SDOs weigh the votes uh, by, the, by the volumes of sales. So as you, as you can see, SDOs themselves, they, they try to balance uh, the interests uh, of the different members involved by designing uh, the different governance structures. And then it also comes as no surprise that SDOs have very different IPR policies. And while, for example, patent pools might be very, uh, very helpful, very useful in some sectors, like the audiovisuals, for example, they might be more uncommon uh, in other sectors, like the telecoms. Even a, a recent study, uh, Baron and Spulberg, 2015, they, in a small sample, in a sample of 38 SDOs, um, they find a, a large variety of, uh, of, of licensing uh, policies. So 23 of these 38 actually offer a whole menu of licensing options, with uh, the front commitment being the, the least restrictive one. Uh, nine offer only the front commitments, five are licensing free, and only one has no licensing requirement. So clearly, there is no one, one, one size that fits all, right? Um, and uh, the third point I would like to make is that SDOs need to be really carefully balanced in order to deliver, in order to deliver what they are meant to deliver. Hmm? Uh, and why is it so important that SDO balance so well the interests of the, of the implementers and the interests of the innovators? Hmm? Only when they are carefully fine-tuned, they can actually simultaneously uh, preserve incentives to innovate, promote participation, and ensure a wide implementation of the standards. And it's only then that they can assure users that they will not be locked into a technological solution that is largely incompatible with other systems or that is used by, by few others. And this is what gives users the, the network externalities that are so, so important in standards, i.e. the fact that the value of the technology increases with, with the number of users. 
And because this is what boosts demand for the technology, and this is ultimately what provides incentives for innovators uh, to innovate in a, in a carefully balanced system, right? Um, um, the, the fourth point I would like to make uh, is, as, as you have noticed, I have been talking about SDOs, standard development organizations, rather than SSOs, standard setting organizations. And this is because uh, SDOs, they actually develop the technologies rather than just selecting the existing technologies. And in my view, this is crucial. Um, because, you know, SDOs shape the technologies, uh, they shape how the new technologies evolve uh, by specifying uh, the rules on how standard compliant products must interact with each other and work with other components. The members of the SDOs continuously um, improve the technological components that they, that they contribute. And so, in my view, this is a major challenge for, um, for the ex-ante uh, benchmark in front or for ex-ante commitment on, on, the, uh, on the licensing terms, because how can you price a technology uh, that you haven't actually developed yet? Hmm? Um, so apart from the practical difficulties of calculating uh, uh, this ex-ante benchmark in France that we can discuss later, um, I actually have a, I'm not, completely clear about the underlying economic rationale. And, and this is what I would like to spend two minutes on. Um, so, so the idea for the ex-ante benchmark, as Pierre mentioned, is to, to strip the innovators from the extra market power uh, they obtain from having their patents selected to the standards uh, and the fact that uh, implementers then no longer have the choice of another technology, right? So to prevent the, the, the hold-up issue, but actually, what these policies, what this ex-ante framework uh, do is to strip innovators from much more. Is to actually from st to strip them, take away all the benefits uh, created in the, in the standard development organization in which they actively participated, including the network externalities that I mentioned. Um, and so, all things equal, with this benchmark, innovators will have uh, less incentives to innovate. So we are here facing the, the classical trade-off of uh, the, the dynamic incentives to innovate and the static uh, customer utility. So in my view, uh, this is the relevant question. The relevant question is what should be the optimal price of IP given this classical trade-off rather than whether innovators have, have too much or too little market power exposed. So, if we were in a situation that customers were directly buying the IP, we would, we would know what to do. We would assess this trade-off. Hmm? But here, actually, the IP are bought by the adopters. So it's even less clear that the lower price of IP that could result from these policies will uh, be actually passed through by the implementers to the customers. Especially in situations where implementers have market power, you know, it's, it's likely that, that, that this uh, fall in the price of IP will, will benefit the, the implementers rather than customers. And um, especially also the, the fact that the IP is normally a small part of the, of the device that customers buy, even with, uh, with full pass through the relation is not direct, why customers will endure in full uh, the loss of innovation resulting from, from, from this uh, ex-ante benchmark, as I explained. 
Um, so, so this is the, the last point I will make in one minute, uh, is actually that um, it seems that uh, the SDOs actually, as they are and as they have been and as have they have been uh, evolving naturally, they, they seem to be, have been doing quite a good job. Uh, we have, uh, Compass Lexicon has, has taken a step back uh, and tried to look uh, at how SDOs perform in terms of innovation and competition as compared to the alternatives. Um, and the evidence we collected suggests that when we are dealing with, with open standards, uh, uh, which are agreed through voluntary participation, as in SDOs, uh, such, as, um, such as, for example, uh, the ones uh, in, in the, uh, in the mobile, telecom, mobile telephony sector, we normally have, we see an impressive record uh, of innovation. And I, I think this, this statement, uh, um, I mean, this, the, these facts are, are quite known to everyone. Uh, so open standard setting with, with licensing of the technology incorporated in the standard also allows many specialized firms uh, to partici participate on, all, uh, on le all levels of the value chain, and most crucially uh, in R&D, uh, even without having a large scale. And this, in our view, promotes competition. Um, the examples we have seen in other sectors uh, where standards have been reached by other means than, than standard development organizations, for example, by, by a single firm acting alone uh, and seeing you know, proprietary standards evolving or through governments uh, imposing uh, certain standards, we have seen that, that these results were not delivered, that if we relied on, on this type of standards, we would be facing a much less competitive and much less dynamic economy. So, thank you. Thank you very much, Alexander. Um, I think um, there were some very clear comments uh, that uh, I'm sure that Pierre would, would like to respond. But I suggest, first of all, to complete the round in the panel and then to move to the discussion. So, uh, Hugh, let us know your views and please step in also on the comments made uh, already if you want. Okay. Um, thank you for organizing this event. Uh, I believe we really need more input from you, from the economist. Um, there's a lot of things to be done. And I really loved your, your comments because I also believe at the end of the, the day, what matters is what how you, are you going to value this IP? How are you going? What, what, what is the figure you're going to put on friend? And there, definitely, I believe we need uh, more economic theories, more, more, more debate on this. And uh, I really like your, your, your comments. And I'm happy, happy also that you took the controversial aspect, so all the controversy will go with you. And I can present. Uh, brilliant uh, views of the commission with no controversy at all. Um, just to introduce myself, sorry, I project manager the study, the CRI study um, for, on behalf of the commission. So I'm uh, in the IP unit of DigiGrow. And I would like to thank uh, Pierre and the CRI team for the work they've done. It was a lot of discussions, uh, but really I believe in the end I'm really happy because in the end, we, we have got something. And it's not just one additional paper or an additional study on SEP because there are so many over the last 15 years. And I believe here, 
Pierre put together a package. And I really want to insist on this uh, idea of a package because that's so, somehow that's what we asked uh, the CIA team to come up with. We said, um, look, if you go three years ago, the main issue, and we had uh, this public consultation, you may remember, on standard essential patents and IP, and most of the debate was pretty much the traditional discussion about patent pools, um, transparency, etc., and very in a very small world, I would say. And then we have seen in the last three years, the, with the advent of IoT, uh, attitudes have evolved, and also the, I believe the quality of the debate has evolved. And now the the issues are much become much clearer, I would argue. So we see it definitely from the Commission perspective as a package, and that's what therefore you cannot pick up and choose. And I would like to come back on a few um, elements of this package that the CRA study presented. Uh, the first one is on transparency. Of course, it's controversial. Of course, there are costs involved. It's not evident to find the, the, the right balance there. Um, but if you ask all these efforts to right holders to, to be more uh, explicit on what they're putting to the standard, it also comes with a certain value. I mean, if whatever effort you do, if you, your standard essential patent, you, you, you bring more information, then in the end, you're stronger when you want to assert it. Because yes, you have gone through all these steps to say, okay, actually, it's quite essential. Yes, of course, in the end, the judge will say, well, it is or it is not, if you want to go to litigation. But if we invest into all these elements, the idea is we want to, to, to see clearly, have more transparency, what is actually the, um, the, the technology that is there. And we believe this added uh, value is beneficial to everybody. Of course, the solution is not clear-cut at the moment, and there's a lot of complaints on, oh yeah, but it's awful, and uh, a lot of costs. Mm, well, maybe. Um, but at least, we, why don't we have a pilot study on a specific technology, on a specific standard, and then we see. And we can test all the uh, ideas proposed by CIA, because they make sense, and so we should test and see how it works in practice. And we can identify a pilot study, and I in invite uh, research on this. On the non-discriminatory, you know, moving to the, the more general friend debate, I am, I'd like to pick up the, the non-discriminatory part of the study, and I would, I believe, uh, the CIA team somehow said, okay, what? Well, Look, what is the practice in the market? That's what we are. What is discriminatory? What can you do? What, can, what is allowed to be done? Because as you said, uh, there is a lot of people being vocal at the moment. But we somehow tend to forget, well, there is a current practice, not only for, for this kind of discriminatory aspects. And they're well known, well accepted. So the idea is well, just remember, remind, um, everybody of those guiding principles, that they are clear and they are not uh, subject to controversy. Finally, on the enforcement part, I would just like to pick up one point that attracted my attention and maybe didn't get a lot of discussion so far, that's your idea of the arbitration and the baseball arbitration. Uh, 
And I, I like the idea, and, uh, but we never go there because that's one of the last suggestions of the report, and I believe it would deserve a bit more debate. Now, of course, the problem is you cannot make uh, arbitration mandatory. It's costly. Um, but I believe there are kind of a few principles that you have put there that are interesting and could be further developed. So far for the, the package. Now, what we want to do with uh, the commission, we always... Um, thank you. Okay. <laughs> so we... Uh, this is also confused message on what we are doing or what we are going to propose. And I think we, we have been very clear what we, we propose. We don't want to, to rule anything. We just want to put together some very general principles. And I think the CIA report puts these principles, they're very cautious on whatever stupid things we could come up with. So they're very cautious on the, the, the recommendations and the principles. So I would welcome any comments, uh, but on substance, on this part of the study where uh, the CIA recommend some general principles that could serve as some sort of a guideline for uh, the market. Now, I would like to use the last minutes for, to focus on front, and it's more especially on the valuation of IP. Because after Huawei, everybody said, oh, okay, everything is clear, Huawei ZTE, everything is clear, so the judgment of the Court of Justice gives a, a very good picture, and yes, indeed, the process is presented and it's nice to follow, and it clearly identify obligations from both parties. But at the end of the day, you still don't have a reply to the, the for me, the main question is, okay, but how, how do you value this? And the, that's why all this uh, work, all these things which is done on valuation of IP and of SEPs is very important in my view. And it's interesting because if you look at the very long and very interesting unwired planet judgment, then suddenly the royalty stack issue, which Pierre put well together in the report, got a lot of preeminence, I would say, in the, in, in the judgment. And so that's where really we, we need more of economist uh, research and your, your input. Um, so I think the economist said in a couple of years, oh, oh SEPs that's uh, an RG for lawyers. Well, I'm happy to leave this RG for lawyers to, to them. And now I believe, please, the economists don't make this an RG, but there is really a lot of things to be done with the valuation of IP. So if you can define more and more principles for how to, to calculate a royalty stack, and then if you can Tell us, okay, what are the comparable uh, licensing that you can be used and how we can do this? That would be, in my view, that would add a lot to the debate. So that's the main uh, points I wanted to make. And really, again, I thank you for trying to move the debate to more economic issues and on substance. Thank you very much, Hugh. And, um, Let's go to Rebecca now. As we saw in the beginning of the presentation, ICT was the most represented sector <laughs> in the study. So uh, we would like to hear your views. And also, uh, we see some uh, controversial issues from the discussions up to now. It will be nice if you can step, on, uh, step in on that. Thank you. 
I will try, thank you. Good afternoon and uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak to you. I'll also start with a little disclaimer and uh, would like to ask you to note that the views that I will be sharing today are my own and that they do not necessarily represent positions of my employer. That being said, Intel is uh, strongly committed to standards. They are important to our business. We need standards to support the interoperable ecosystems that allow us to deliver innovative and cost-efficient solutions on a global scale. And that applies to many areas, whether you look at, the, uh, at cloud computing, the Internet of Things, cybersecurity technology, or wearable computing. Standards are the common catalysts that uh, allow us to bring new innovations to global markets. For that reason, Intel is, uh, engages in literally hundreds of standards bodies around the world. We participate in approximately 700 working groups where the standards are actually de uh, developed. And in addition, colleagues from Intel are strongly engaged in the administration of those bodies. We chair committees, we sit on boards of directors, and we involve ourselves in forming new bodies and new working groups for future generations of technology. Uh, I think by and large, directly and indirectly, we're talking about hundreds if not thousands of employees, Intel employees that are somehow involved in developing standards and in implementing them uh, into our products. That means that having a functioning and reliable, but also a global standards uh, infrastructure is very important to us. That includes certainty around licensing of patents included in standards. Intel itself holds around uh, more than, well, well more than 60,000 patents assets uh, on a worldwide basis. And that includes a significant number of standards essential patents. Like many others in the industry, We've made commitments to standards organization, uh, standards development organizations to provide licenses to these SEPs on FRAND terms. And in some environments, we also have made commitments to uh, provide licenses on royalty-free terms. So as both an owner of numerous SEPs and manufacturer of standards-compliant products, we favor a balanced approach to SEPs, <coughs> an approach that values intellectual property rights on the one hand, but that also discourages uh, SEP holders from uh, inappropriately using standards to the detriment of end users and manufacturers of uh, standards compliance products. You can imagine that we have followed and also contributed to the SEP debate in Europe, but also elsewhere with clear vested interests. And we have also gladly contributed our perspectives in an interview during the preparation of the CRA study. And in fact, we've seen and contributed to a large number of studies on FRIEND and SEPs over the year. And on this background, I would like to briefly take the opportunity to thank Pierre and the CRA for a study that we feel really stands out. Stands out in terms of thoroughness and depth of its analysis but also in terms of being a truly unbiased and independent study. And maintaining that independence on a topic as passionately argued as SEPs is not a small feat. I've truly been impressed with the way that uh, CRA has managed to combine taking stakeholder views into account and then applying their own independent economic expertise. 
That, of course, Pierre, doesn't mean that I necessarily agree with all your recommendations <laughs> and findings. <laughs> you are waiting for that. <laughs> but I do believe you've uh, brought us a great reference framework for discussion. And let me, in the following, just pick out two topics for just to invite further discussion on this panel. Firstly, I'm particularly impressed with the uh, studies analysis of the main issues. Pierre has presented that earlier on. And in fact, when I was preparing for today, I couldn't help being reminded of uh, the heated debate many of us had in this very venue about a year ago on whether royalty stacking is an issue or not. And in other venues and across the literature, there have been similarly heated debates on whether things like hold up or hold out are issues or not. And I believe that one of the most valuable contributions of uh, CRA study is that it provides pretty conclusive answers to these questions. And it thereby identifies key issues that need to be addressed. Pierre talked about them, hold up, royalty stacking. And I believe that the benefit of this is that it provides us with a kind of clear problem statement that we need in order to move on and focus on identifying solutions. The second topic that I'd like to put forward is the uh, topic of uh, specific versus negative disclosures. I find the study's assessment of this topic balanced and reasonable. There is a risk, though. I believe it's very important to keep the nuances of that assessment in mind when discussing the specific recommendations. The way I read it, the study does not recommend uh, that uh, specific disclosure is the best solution in all cases. And I fully agree with that recommendation. In fact, and Pierre, you've already said it, many standards organizations uh, deploy purely negative disclosure policies. And they do so quite successfully. And I believe there's no evidence that would suggest that there are more or larger problems associated with uh, this than with specific disclosure. And that is because the primary purpose of declarations, after all, does remain to provide assurances that uh, licenses to SEPs are available on a FRAND basis. And where there is a common understanding on the meaning of FRAND, a negative disclosure policy will in most cases be completely adequate to, those, to that purpose. Specific disclosure will always be more costly for SEP holders than negative disclosure. If you just look at the standards process and don't take into account what they anyhow need to do. Um, and the study correctly points out that those costs of providing information about the existence of potentially infringed patents, but also the costs of provi providing at least some prima facie evidence of that infringement are normally borne by patent holders, also outside the standards development context. Pierre has also explained how uh, the costs associated with that can even be lower in the context of a standard setting organization than outside that context. But this observation really only holds for SEP holders um, who as part of their business model actively um, assert patents for royalties. Practically, there are however many um, SEP holders who do not necessarily actively assert their patents for royalties. And in our experience, the majority of contributors to uh, standards development processes actually fall into that category of defensive patent holders who only or mostly use their patents for defensive purposes. 
For those, per for those companies, the cost related to specific declaration is always cost that they would not normally incur. And it is for that reason that we believe it is important when considering a more information-intensive disclosure policy to be very careful to not unduly raise the cost burden for those parties. Worst case, we run into a situation where we bring those companies into a situation where they, they need to seek for ways to recover those costs. And they, they could do so by all of a sudden starting to assert their patents, which may not be what we set out to do. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Um, so I think there are many issues on the table. I don't want to put more, to put more because we need to have also time for audience, uh, questions from the audience. Uh, so Pierre, your reactions from this first round. Okay, so thank you very much for many interesting comments. Let me start with your last comment. It actually is, is mm. very useful. You know, when, what we have here have broad recommendations. Of course, these are not detailed plans, and to go through detailed plans, you have to add a bit more of industry-specific knowledge of the type you just added. It's true that if part of the people who have standard essential pattern usually would not enforce them, but just hold them defensively, the last thing you want to do is force them to have a specific uh, declaration, and then they need to recover the cost. So you could modify the policy saying essentially the specific declaration is only required of firms who pretend to, uh, 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 who want to collect royalties as part of the licensing agreement. So, but you're quite right. That's a very nice example of kind of, you know, the, the kind of very important refinement that you need when you go from general principles like the one we discussed in the study to actual Im implementation. Going to another implementation question, I completely agree with you, and that's actually something we, I, we try to acknowledge in the study. The many standard setting or standard development organization work fine. Okay? That's one of the reasons why we were very careful, first, to not claim that those things be mandatory, to say that actually the the precise mix, actually there are three slides that I didn't go through it to give you kind of different mix, you know, the light touch, the best seller, the full Monty, that should be considered for different kind of industries. But we also know that in some industry, unfortunately for the last 10 years, things haven't gone that well. In a sense, you can even think of what we're doing as making just proposal to the industries and giving them a choice, mm -hmm. saying, look, we're not even talking about imposing many things or anything on you, but realistically, if you're an industry where standards, especially for the Internet of Things, you know, you know which, which SDOs I'm talking about here. Frankly, I cannot say, but clearly that's not really a secret. Uh, you know that if things don't go well, there's going to be intervention. We've given you kind of some ideas that seems to be fairly light touch, so it might ensure that things do well. You've got a choice between trying to implement those ideas or taking the risk of a more ham-fisted approach, say by DG Comp or DG Connect, or and now one of the six, seven, eight, or nine, or 12 DGs, and now I involved in that later on. Now, that might be for the better, that might be for the worse. It might depend on who is the commissioner, who is the chief economist or not. Frankly, that's not the way I would run. To, I would want to run a business. The way I would run to, want to run a business is in a preemptive way, trying to adopt fairly kind of light touch 
suggestions uh, decreases uh, the probability that I might end up in this kind of not optimal situation. Now, two comments about the ex-ante benchmark. First, I do not agree that the ex-ante benchmark means that the pattern holder do not get any benefit from the existence of a standard itself. If you solve it right with, uh, with, the, you know, with the negotiation framework and so on, they do get part of the standards. And I agree with you, I'm very adamant. I'm completely against the people who say that the patent holder should not get any of the rent from the very existence of the standard. That has nothing to do with hold up. The rent from the existing of a standard arise because the standard exists. Why does the standard exist? Because you have pattern order on one, on one hand and you have users on the other hand. So they both contribute to the existence of the standard, so they bo both should share some of the rents. So I think that, that is absolutely unambiguous, and this is not excluded by the XLT benchmark. Actually, it's a recent paper in the Minnesota Law Review by somebody called Cooter, who makes, from the legal point of view, the argument that the value of the standard actually is something that should partially go to the innovators, uh, to the patent holders, and that they should not be included from that. And I would recommend that you look at this thing. When I talk about SSO, of course, most, most good SSO are SDOs. If only because, as I said, it's very rare that you already have all of the pieces of the puzzle. You know, you've got a bunch of technologies. Some aspects are covered, some aspects are covered by more than one technology, but you don't know which technology is going to fit with the other part of the puzzle. And at some point, you know, there are holes. So you're going to have to really develop the standard to create technologies so to make the standard possible. And you're quite right. And those, the value of, the, of this development cannot be taken into account in an ex-ante benchmark. So what this tells me is that the ex-ante benchmark is there to determine a stack that essentially applies to the existing and anticipated other you know, general technologies that those parties you know, have in the work would be expected to do, but would not really adequately capture this kind of bespoke work that they do within the, uh, within the confine of the SEO. But it seems to me that that's not necessarily that much of a problem. Or they test you that you should have a stack for, those, uh, for, for these, then you should find another way of remunerating the within SDO work. Because it's within SDO, and this work which is taken explicitly to solve explicit problems of the SDO, clearly some kind of remuneration based on costing cured or something like that would be possible. But you're quite right to point out that that aspect is not automatically covered by kind of the stack approach that, uh, that I mentioned. Uh, then I think that that's at least what I remember that I had to address. Thank you, Pierre. You want to? Yeah, just maybe one word. Um, there's one, one aspect of the ex-ante benchmark that I maybe have, I, I didn't have time to develop, so mm -hmm. um, I, I welcome that you, that you open the possibility of, of somehow remunerating innovators for the work they do in SDO, but um, when I read the unwired versus Huawei judgment, the judge Breeze says um, um, that the way to implement this um, front royalty stack approach that I think uh, you you are also uh, suggesting in your report, um, is that you will price your portfolio of patents 
um, basically you will take the, the, the whole uh, front stack and you will see what share of patents in the, all the declared patents mm -hmm. uh, is, is, is your portfolio, right? So you will multiply the whole front stack times this share, uh, which is the number of your patents in the, num in, in the whole bundle. And then she says, you can allow for deviations from this approach only when you demonstrate that your portfolio is of a significantly different quality ex ante, again, from, from this, uh, the intrinsic value of the patents uh, before the standard is set. Again, in my view, there is, a, there is a problem with this approach because this doesn't take into account uh, the fact that uh, the value of the patent is actually created uh, is actually determined by its relationship with all the other patterns in the bundle, by the complementarity patterns within the SDO. What matters is not only the intrinsic value of the patent before the standard is set, but actually the value created or the value of the patent in combinations with all the other patterns, so, so, so the, the, the complementarity patterns. And this is really a continuous variable, the, the degree of complementarity or the degree of essentiality. So this should also be taken into account uh, in, in, in our discussions of front or in, in this uh, ex-ante uh, benchmark. And just one last point, because I have personally uh, would like to, 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 to see more, maybe it's re really difficult empirically to see uh, even more of the, I mean, to see more evidence of, of the actual uh, market failure, to see more of the evidence uh, of the royalty stacking. The on, I think the only example I have seen in the report is, is, a, is a reference to the Margaret Slate paper uh, on, uh, on breweries and pubs, on actually uh, on, on divestment of, uh, of pubs uh, by breweries in the United Kingdom, and that this actually, uh, and its effect on price, while in the literature you see very different interpretations of this uh, empirical phenomenon. For example, Legro and, New, and Newman point to the, to the you know, coordination issues and more organization theory um, explanations of, of this phenomenon. So anyways, I would have liked to see more evidence of the market failure, uh, in, in the actual relevant sectors that we are talking about, on hold up, on hold out, on, on the royalty stacking, because in my view, this is really the necessary uh, condition for regulation, albeit not, not even sufficient, but uh, the first one, the necessary condition. So I would welcome more on that. Two, 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 uh, two, two things on that. Uh, I, I do disagree with the complementary thing, because when we talk about the accented value of the stack, the stack the value of the stack does take into account the complementarity between all those patterns. That's the value of the, con the overall joint technological contribution to the standards. That takes into account all complementarities. So that, that's precisely why I think... Well, no, it does, but by, by definition. You've got the standard on art, Therefore, it's a joint contribution that you assess. If you assess a joint contribution, then you, you, you take okay. it to as complementarity. When you might disagree, then is that when it, when it starts, when you use a stack and you want to divide it between firms, maybe some of the pattern contribute more to the complementarities than others. Yeah, 
Sure, so yes, but sure. that frankly, there's no hope in hell we're ever going to get to that. But this is the crux of the matter. I don't think this is the crux of the matter. I think that if we can have a pretty good idea of what the tech is and a pretty good idea of how you can be divided, frankly, le mieux est parfois l'esprit, l'ennemi du bien, comme on dit. I think that they are, they are necessarily kind of complicating uh, matters to be kind of useful in a policy context, at, uh, at least in my opinion. On the other hand, some things I would point out, which kind of uh, is a rejoinder to both you to what you said, Yes, clearly knowing more about pattern evaluation is always a good thing. And especially, precisely, if we go in the direction of the stack, it would behoove us to have more interesting economic studies, develop economic methods that could apply directly to the stack rather than to the royalties. Clearly, you know, you're an economist, you can think of things you could do, comparative studies, da 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 da. I think that developing those kind of techniques for economists would be kind of a nice contribution so that Justice Briss would not just have to kind of think things out of Sinair. In this case, she didn't. You know, there was a, a declaration a long time ago by Ericsson who had said, oh, you know, we think that the total stack of, I'm not going to tell you the percentage, is probably fair, that I think had a profound influence on the kind of stacks that Justice Burst uh, decided to choose. But to some extent, as economists, we would like to have a bit, a bit stronger foundation to kind of determine what, uh, what, what the stack would be. And I would uh, agree with you that, that that definitely is well worth developing. So um, we can continue the discussion, but it is uh, good to open also the floor for questions in order to make sure that uh, uh, we'll have some uh, um, answers and questions uh, session. So I see some <coughs> hands there. If the microphone can go there, uh, please identify your ha uh, yourself and ask the question. It is nice to, to keep it short in order to give more opportunities for questions. Thank you. Uh, Keith Mallins and Weishauer, a question for Pierre. So your um, mechanism that you're proposing for um, counting patents and using that as an allocation system um, it, it would seem to me if you're doing that, it, it, it's going to be predicated on your ability to be able to assess the essentiality with accuracy, um, particularly if you're going to use a sampling method. But e even, even if you didn't use a sampling method, you need to do it accurately. I think in your paper you said something like, it's quite straightforward, a pattern is either essential or it isn't. The, those, I think that was the wording you used, something like that. But, but actually, it's not as straightforward, it's not as clear-cut. And um, in the investigations I've made with some of the studies that look at, at um, essentiality, so, for example, there are about half a dozen that have looked at LTE over the years. Some of them have yeah. done it more than once. <laughs> if you look at the results of those studies, it's unbelievable yeah, how disparate their results are. So if you are to create a central body that's going to do this kind of assessment, um, I think it's, it would be of concern because you need to be able to do it objectively, you need to be able to do it consistently and accurately. And I don't see evidence that you can be sure that that's going to happen. Okay. Um, so... Uh, what, what, what do you, have, have you looked at that aspect and, and, and would you be concerned? I mean, one of the issues, if it's central, I think it could be manipulated, it could be politicized. I mean, just look at litigation when they, 
two sides are assessing essentiality, they, they have different opinions. So, you know, it's, 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 it just doesn't lend itself. It's not like measuring the length of a table or something. No, no, no. I, I agree that essentiality is a bit of a slippery uh, concept, and I'm aware of the studies. Actually, there were two beautiful studies where essentially there was almost no overlap between the <laughs> sets of patterns that one set of engineers thought was essential and the other one. So I'm, I'm, I'm painfully aware of that. Now, on the other hand, at some point, if you want to have meaningful pattern negotiation, there's got to be somewhere somebody who has an idea of what is essential or not. And in the extreme case, eventually, it's going to be determined by a judge. So judges are not perfect either in determining the essentiality. So what I think our goal is to have something that would not be way, way, way worse an assessment than what you would get in court, and that would be as impartial as what you would get in court. And of course, you know, that's not a topic that we can, I cannot come up with a detailed and robust solution just thinking about it for a little while. But the kind of things you had in mind is that for essentiality test, either the EPO itself or an expert group of body of, you know, former EPO kind of analysts who have worked in this field might be the kind of body that you would have. I agree with you that the last thing that you would want is to have one side come up with this expert group and the other side come up with the expert group because you're never going to see the light of that. So yes, there are important implementation issues of what you do this. But again, if you start thinking about you know, independent bodies like the EPO and the fact that any assessment of essentiality, even at the level of the justice uh, decision, which is going to tell you whether you agree or not, what the truth is from the point of view uh, 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 of legality is itself imperfect, I think, I think one can do something. There was also another hand there. Yeah, please. Hello. <clears throat> Hello, and thank you very much. This was a very interesting discussion. I have a question for Pierre, but if anyone else on the panel wishes to chime in, that would be great. Um, we've touched a little bit on how do you value SEPs that are subject to a friend commitment. And um, I want to think for a second back to non-SEPs that aren't subject to friend commitments. The value is usually the value of that patented invention. And you don't get any other value associated with that. And hey, maybe it's a really strong patent and it's worth a lot of money. And maybe it's a weak patent and it's not worth very much. So then in the SEPs context, we have FRAND commitments that many people believe are, uh, re are requested of SEP holders to help balance market power. There's competition law issues here, and we didn't really discuss competition law issues much today. And that FRAND is meant to make sure that uh, there is not additional value because of lock-in, because the industry has come together and agreed on uh, the patented technologies. So why would we value FRAND-encumbered SEPs differently than even regular patents? And some would argue even more beneficially. You get more. You get some of the standards. You get this. And, and so I'm a little confused by that. It sounds like um, actually uh, some people are suggesting FRAND-encumbered SEPs get a greater uh, value associated with them than just any regular patent. So if you, you could comment on that, that would be great. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, if I may, let's see if there is any other question to uh, <coughs> the collective. Is there any other question at the moment? Yeah, please. Uh, 
Thank you. This is Peter Deppert from Seren Seren. Like, uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, this study aims to provide a guidance to the players in the, the field, basically, and either they have to adjust or uh, the commission will intervene. And we saw recently there was a roadmap from the commission on the, the standard social patents. So is the commission going to take into account these conclusions from the study, or are there other elements which maybe they will come up uh, later at another point? Thank you. Uh, one more question before we go to the answers. Is there any? Yeah, please, in the first row. Nicholas Listel, Compass Lexicon. Um, I suppose a question related to the, the question of whether it's such a simple binary decision, whether a patent is essential or not. Um, what about the relevance of alternatives, of, of you know how good or how valuable the patent is relative to the second best alternative, and how and if that can be taken into account when, when determining royalties. Okay, uh, who wants to start? Uh, maybe I can and then you. Yeah. Uh, you have the microphone, so you can. Oh, okay, yeah, I have a yeah. <laughs> so for, first let me answer and complete, com complete my answer that was not complete to yours. Now I agree, essentially it is not dichotomous, yes or no. Now from the point of view of having a simple scheme, what is the only practical thing is to ask the examiner, look, if you're reasonably sure that it's essential, then it counts as an essential. If not, it doesn't count as an essential. We, you could have another kind of more continuous grading pattern, you know, one if you're very sure, or two if you're somewhere. So anything is there, but that seems like a, a bit complicated. So pragmatically, you've got to do this. About this, you know, you, your point I don't think refer to what you would do exposed, right? Exposed, essentially, you will this kind of, what you're referring to essentially is what is kind of the joint surplus which is generated by the patents and by, uh, and by the implementers. That is the kind of things that you would need to take into account to get a meaningful measure if we went into this economic approach to think of, of what the stack is in the first place. Okay, so that's at that level. So right now if you look at what Justice Brice has done, Justice Brice has just, you know, use kind of common, common sense type of things to determine what the stack ought to be. If you want to go farther than that, yes, precisely. We have to develop techniques that helps us kind of take this kind of, uh, this kind of consideration into account. And that's not totally trivial. And yes, this is useful uh, uh, room for economists to uh, do things there. Okay. Now, turning to uh, your question. I would never recommend that you should get kind of a, a higher royalty just because you're a friend and convert pattern. No. Again, the royalty you should get is what you would have gotten if we did not have this kind of bothersome possible problem of holdup due to specific investment. And from that point of view, if you look at Justice Bruce's decision, she clearly says that although she subscribed to this ex-ante view and the fact that it defines an ex-ante stack that then could be divided, this is only one of the two approaches that she wants to use. That she still finds it very useful to use the much more common comparative approach, which is an exposed approach. Now what is the logic of the comparative approach? The logic of comparative approach is to precisely find patterns that are not friend encumbered. And they're not friend encumbered because supposedly they are in a context where hold up is not much of an issue. 
And then if this pattern has a sufficiently comparable or another technical and economic importance uh, dimension, then they give you a benchmark that would give you an idea of what the royalty should have been if you had been in a situation that where all that was not a possibility. But of course, as you can figure out, especially in the sector of IC, ICT, where mm, a large proportion of patents are only useful within standards, sometimes finding good comparator, comparators is not, is not easy, which is why it actually makes a lot of sense to kind of rely on both approaches that kind of gives you, gives you bonds, and then, you know, as a judge that has expertise in IP, you can look at more of the detail of the specific patents in front of you to kind of decide where within those bounds you're right to be. But at least it gives you nice bounds. You know, for disclosure, I have to tell you, I was involved in the UAE versus Unwide Planet case. Uh, I wrote a report for UAE with Damian Evans from Compact Lexicon. But essentially, the nice thing about this case is that you're no longer in a situation where an expert can tell you, oh, friend, this could be friend, or something which is a thousand times bigger, I'm not making this up, can also be friend. We're no longer there. I think if you combine the two approaches that you looked at, you know, those kind of time wasters who made this kind of argument are gone, they're out of court, and I think everybody is better off for it. If I may add one small point also on this issue of, um, well, because I, I share Amy's confusion and appreciate your explanation on, well, are we now talking about valuing friend and cumbered patents differently than um, normal patents, so to yeah. say. But we also have to keep in mind when it comes to uh, standards essential patents, one of the strong incentives, I believe, for uh, contributing uh, patented technologies to standardization is also that your overall potential reward is, of course, not only expressed in terms of the royalty, but it's royalty times number mm -hmm. of times that you can assert that royalty. Mm -hmm. And through the standardization, uh, for a successful standard, the base of your potential license source is increased significantly. Plus, it's much easier to find them. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go to the question about the commission. Um, yes. Before, I, just one comment on the valuation. Really, that's where there is a lot of room for, for additional expertise and input from economists. Uh, I remember some of the Jean Tirole made a paper two, three, or maybe four, five years ago. Uh, addressing some of those issues, and if some more can be done, uh, it's obvious that the judgment uh, on Planet gives a lot of interesting prospects of fine-tuning uh, the economic approach to get to the better valuation uh, approach. Uh, one thing we, we have not mentioned is the patent pool, which is always uh, as a reference or as a benchmark. It's always presented as a magic solution, and yet, for different reasons, patent pool don't always emerge. Uh, that's one of the critics I had, actually, with the CI study, with, was encouraging patent pool. So, okay, but how do you encourage patent pool without just saying, oh, we encourage the creation of patent pool? So, the, I believe uh, it would be interesting to see how the industry evolves and can come together to form these uh, these patent pools and somehow give a 
because they would address those valuation issues as well as um, more transparency and clarity on what is actually there. Uh, coming back to the question on Sensenelec, uh, whether Sensenelec is, <laughs> is in our radar screen. Um, well, there was this whole debate on SDOs, SSOs. Um, and it's true, we have, communication is not easy on this. Uh, when we say SSOs or SDOs, it's very broad. And of course, there are so many different models. And we don't want to tackle all of them. Um, the report mentioned uh, problematic sectors. Um, so it's not really a catchy word. Um, <laughs> but the idea is uh, for, for those sectors where there is an issue, where uh, there is a lot of new players who will depend on the connectivity uh, element, they need uh, more, more, more clarity and uh, they need to understand the rules of the game, whatever those rules are. So that's what we, we were trying to do. We are not at all trying to intervene in the governance of SDOs or SSOs or Sense and Lake in particular or Etsy. Uh, we believe the governance of the, those uh, organizations, they have members, they, they handle this. Uh, and they have an IPR policy, which is the way they want to design it. Um, and that's also one of the cri critical remarks I had with, to Pierre when he was finalizing the study was, okay, but if you make a recommendation, some of this, I'm, I'm kind of nervous when we ask, if we ask SSOs to deal with issues which are, in my view, more, uh, which should be dealt with by by uh, more policy at policy level. I mean, standardization are great at uh, designing standards, and they've adopted the IPR policy, which I think fit best their uh, framework, their environment, their members. And for years, the debate has been oh, on SDO, focusing on SDOs or on uh, competition intervention. Competition rules intervention, and I believe in in the middle there is a big vacuum. And when you try to address it, uh, people say, "Well, no, no, actually, the, the, only the judge will tell you." Well, I believe there is a need for more, at least on some sort of more, more guidance or reminding people of what are actually the general rules that should apply. Uh, now, the question whether we would base our uh, recommendation mainly on CR report on others. Um, well, you know, we have had a lot of input from different stakeholders. Many in the room, we have seen them a couple of times, not to say more, at each level of the commission. Pierre mentioned all the DGs and all services of the commission. I can tell you, all have been approached uh, by all stakeholders. Um, but again, it's not a... Um, we see the, the, the debate, the quality of the debate is evolving. So we, we, we are more than happy to receive this input. And uh, now we, the roadmap was just published, but what is in the roadmap was just what was announced in the communication on ICT uh, prior, um, well, this package on digitalization of the industry last year. So just a, it's not a new, new, new <coughs> invitation for, for stakeholders to contribute. A, we, we are more than happy to receive more of those input, but on substance, and where that's why 
I believe, as you said, there are many vocals around, and of course, maybe a lot of patients. Patient, patient, patient. And um, I think we need, we need to take a step back and go back to okay, what are the, the, the basic principles, and that's the one uh, we should clarify. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because I really enjoy this discussion we have, uh, we are out of time. Um, I hope uh, this applies for me. Certainly, I will go home with many messages from this uh, discussion we had today. I hope this applies to you. I would like to invite you to thank the speakers again for being here and discuss this issue.